I want to invite you to turn to your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll be getting to read in verse 8 through verse 12. Many of you know, who have been with us for a while, that we're going obviously all the way through the, the letter of 1 Peter. Uh, there are two letters, in fact, but this is the first letter uh, written by the Apostle Peter to encourage the saints, especially the suffering church, uh, the church that is uh, uh, under a growing persecution uh, on a number of levels. Nero is currently the, the emperor in power, and if any of you know a little bit of your history, Nero went from bad to worse as far as uh, his, the atrocities that the Christians were persecuted from. Uh, he was, they were the scapegoats so that Nero could get off uh, scot-free, in a sense, uh, from burning Rome because he wanted to restart and rebuild it all. And so uh, he needed a scapegoat, and the Christians became that scapegoat. And we, uh, as I said, if you know your history, there are some brutal actions on behalf of the emperor Nero uh, onto the Christian community. And so Peter, seeing the forecast, but also understanding the current spiritual climate, writes this letter. And we have been going through this letter, and we've been going through a, a, kind of a, a mini-series within his letter all about what Christian conduct looks like in a variety of contexts. And so we start here in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Again, the title is Christian Conduct in the Church. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace. And pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Katie, do you want me to bring my little clicker? It's right over there. I forgot it again. This is my daughter, Katie. Thanks, Katie. That was not planned. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, one of the things, if you were to walk into our home, is my wife loves decor. And uh, though uh, I'm a a simpleton, uh, she loves to kind of fill the walls with various things. And so we find this happy medium. We just talked about Christian conduct and marriage last week, so you understand that we're we're working at this, you know, together, finding compromise after compromise. But um, you'll walk into our house, and if you walk into our dining room, for example, you'll see a, a sign that says "Gather." 
Uh, if you go to use the restroom in one of our restrooms, you'll have a, 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 an abbreviated reminder of 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love is patient, love is kind. Uh, in other words, all around our house, we have kind of little messages and, and reminders, and honestly, they, they're actually very good. They're, they're, they're scriptures that we have uh, printed on little plaques or something, just as a way of reminding us. And perhaps if I were to walk into your home, uh, I would see something very similar, right? You would see uh, uh, other messages. In fact, it's very popular to have, uh, you know, some kind of billboard, so to speak, of either verses or even the rules of the household, right? Rules of the household are actually becoming very popular. Uh, rules of this house. We treat everyone with respect. We say please and thank you. We love each other no matter what. We say sorry when we're wrong. We know how to have fun. You know, the list goes on. I especially love this sign right here. This is called house rules. This really resonates with my personality. <laughs> if you drop it, please pick it up. If you sleep in it, make it up. If you open it, close it. If you wear it, hang it up. If you get it out, put it on. You know, it, it just the list goes on. If it's trash, throw it away. If you open it, close it. If you turn it on, turn it off. Just simple things that honestly just seem to make so much sense, right? Sometimes we have these things. At least so much sense in how my mind works. But I know my mind does not always work the way your mind works and vice versa. We have so many complexities, and that's why we can go back to last week's sermon Christian conduct and marriage, and we can kind of revisit that over and again, right? Of like how to humble ourselves and surrender our ways and modes, in a sense, so that we can most honor and glorify King Jesus. But the fact is, we all have these, we can have these descriptions, we can have rules of the household, and of course, the intent behind it ultimately is to encourage maybe a higher probability of organization, uh, to promote or encourage a, a, a greater sense of love and compassion and peace and harmony in the home. And I think our passage does something very similar to the messages we might have hanging around our household. You see, in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells us how we, as followers of Jesus Christ, should relate to one another, to, to treat one another. Uh, it's somewhat similar to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. Now remember, as the sake of just kind of, if you're new with us or if you haven't been with us for a couple weeks, I just want to bring a quick reminder as to where we're coming from. Peter, the jump off verse is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses tw- verse 12, where Peter's saying, let your conduct among the Gentiles, which is a reference to unbelievers, let your conduct among unbelievers be excellent. No matter what the landscape is, no matter how difficult life is, no matter how much you may be enduring as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, let your conduct be excellent so that by your excellent conduct, the greatest advantage, the greatest probability of someone coming into saving faith with Jesus Christ might take a place because of your Christian witness. And so what we see is that Peter's given us all kinds of examples of what that looks like. He says, what does Christian conduct look like? What does excellent conduct look like? And he goes into a lot of practical examples. He goes into kind of our, 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 we talked about Christian conduct as citizens, you know, whether it be governing authorities or employer-employee relationships. We talked about Christian conduct in the context of marriage. And now this morning, Peter addresses Christian conduct that should be visibly observed in the church. 
Specifically, Peter's really honing in on the interpersonal relationships of the church family. Now again, a primary motivation for living in such a manner is because the salvation of people by our Christian witness is at stake. Because the point is, and we've said it before and we'll say it again, people are watching. People are watching your life, whether you recognize it or not. Whether you realize it or not, people are watching your life. And as someone kind of encourages the question, because they are watching your life, we ought to be wondering, what are they observing? What conclusions are they making by watching my life? Especially in the way in which I treat brothers and sisters in Christ or in the church. After all, what does Jesus say in the Gospel of John of chapter 13, verses 34 and 35? Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. What is that new commandment? That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So for the church to display excellent conduct with one another among the watchful eye of unbelievers, certain qualities must be present. And these are qualities that are representative in our text here this morning. There must be a right attitude. There must be a right right response. And there must be a right motivation. So let's kind of go through here and let's talk about the right attitude of excellent conduct within the church. Verse 8, Peter says this, finally, his final example, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter gives us five descriptions of an attitude that is consistent with excellent conduct. The first description is unity of mind. Some, maybe, your, maybe your translation says unity of spirit. You probably have heard the verse said over and again, but I, you know, I can, I'm reminded and encouraged by it over and again. Psalm 133.1 says what this. It says, behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, Right? It's good, it's pleasant, it's, it's like oil running down, right, the air, beard of Aaron, right? It's like this is just refreshing to the soul, it's refreshing to my life. This unity of mind or this unity of spirit that Peter refers to means to share the same thoughts and attitudes. It, it means to live harmoniously with one another, it resonates with what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, right? After Jesus already basically told his disciples, hey, here's all that you can expect to transpire in the, next, in the coming days. Here's what's going to happen. And then Jesus breaks away from his disciples and he prays to his Father in heaven and he prays this in part. He says, I pray that they will be one just as you and I are one. This is Jesus talking to his own Father 
He's asking his father, Father, may these people, these followers, these disciples, my people be one as you and I are one. He goes on to say in verse 22 of John 17, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. Verse 23, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. If you're wondering, does Jesus care about unity? I think that it's an emphatic yes. Jesus cares very deeply about the unity of the body of Christ. God's desire for his church is that we would experience a unity of mind and of heart because that is what reflects him. It reflects who he is, of what he experiences eternally and perfectly. Now, there is a clarification that I want to kind of bring to this whole concept or topic of unity because sometimes we think unity is that we're just a bunch of clones of one another, and that's not what unity is. You see, unity doesn't mean uniformity, right? Uniformity of practice. It doesn't mean necessarily union between all denominations and all the other religions. It doesn't mean unanimity of thinking and convictions. That's not what unity unity as described or defined in Scripture. Now, unity of mind or unity of the Spirit implies oneness, it's a reference to our oneness. You might illust- we might think of it as like a choir, right? If you, if, not that we have a choir up here necessarily, but do you think of a choir? A choir uh, sings in harmony, but it doesn't sing the exact same thing that every other part and piece is singing, right? There are different parts within a choir. Oftentimes they're singing very different melodies, but they're all harmonious in one fashion, or at least ideally they are. Otherwise, it's not so pleasant to the ears, right? But a choir that is pleasant to the ears, that is, that is kind of nourishing to the soul, and that is, 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 is nice just to sit back and close your eyes and just kind of reminisce and like, wow, some people are so talented. They all have various parts, much like we all have various giftings, but complementing one another into one glorious, God-honoring, unified fashion. It's what... Paul the Apostle refers to in Philippians 1.27 when he says, above all. After all that I've said up to this point, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come to see you again or whether I hear about you, I will know that you're standing together and with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith which is the good news. So this unity of mind, this unity of spirit is a oneness of spirit. It's a oneness of purpose and it's a oneness of gospel conviction. That's what Peter's referencing here. But he gives us a second description as well. And he says, let, you all, let us also have the attitude of sympathy. Sympathy means to share in, in the same feelings with another person, both in one's joys as well as one's sorrows, and more oftentimes in one's sorrows. It's to share the feelings with them. That's what Paul says in Romans twelve fifteen: Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, sympathy depends on the willingness to forget 
self. To exercise godly or biblical sympathy, there is a willingness to forget self and to identify with the other person, either in their pains or in their sorrows. But it's important that we understand sympathy, as described in Scripture, is always a, a, forget, a self-forgetfulness so that you might be able to genuinely engage in feeling the, what the other person is feeling. After all, it's very easy to offer a false sympathy. Maybe it's more common than we realize. You know, sometimes we might even be, we might, we might act like we care because we're more influenced by what people are watching in our lives. We might even be motivated by the fact that, you know, I know I need to show that I care because of the wrong impression I might give people if I don't care, even if I don't really care. But sympathy is a genuine coming alongside and feeling what the other person is feeling. It's a, it's a self-forgetfulness. Let me give you a quick example in our home. It's very common when one of our kids gets bumped or bruised or cut or scraped or whatever it may be, we have a whole kind of like this repeated kind of thing where like so-and-so gets pampered treatment, you know, and our, our daughter Riley loves to kind of like, you know, she's just like, she's going to be a great nurse or doctor or something someday. She just like jumps, jumps right in there, makes sure everybody's just all taken care of. And oftentimes one of the other siblings or all the siblings come up and they start comparing bumps and bruises, you know. And so I know this person is the person that just got hurt right now, but it's all about, well, look at this, look at this, and clothes start coming off, and it's just a, a comparison of all the other cuts and bruises. Now, the intention is good. They're trying to sympathize. But it's amazing how even in our sympathy, sometimes it can be very self-serving. Because the moment we bring the attention back to ourselves, we are no longer sympathizing. The moment we bring the attention back on ourselves, like, well, I have a story also. And sometimes the intention is good, but we're no longer coming alongside and feeling the feelings of that person. We're bringing it on, let's talk about me. And sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. And we mean so well in it. But sympathy is a self-forgetfulness and a sharing of the same feelings of another person. We also have brotherly love. Brotherly love is an attitude that is displayed by an unselfish service for another person. It, It sometimes can be understood by the kind of patience and the kind of attention that we would give even a biological family member, especially a wayward biological family member. What does John say in 1 John 4.20? He says, if, any, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love God, we can, or if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he who has given us this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. The point that brotherly love implies here, or what even John is describing here, is that love for God and love for fellow brothers and sisters go hand in hand. One cannot exist without the other. Now, you might say it because of sometimes the language used here, you're going, well, Aaron, I don't hate my brother. 
I just want nothing to do with them. I don't hate my sister in Christ. I just don't want to be around them. And everything's better and more peaceful if we can just keep the distance at a certain length, right? Listen, any resistance toward unity with a fellow believer only exposes an unforgiving and loveless heart for that believer. Any resistance to pursue unity with a fellow believer in Jesus Christ only exposes an unforgiving and unloving heart for that believer. It really exposes a hardness of heart. So brotherly love is an unselfish service for another. Fourthly, we, Peter says to have a tender heart, an attitude that has a, t- and a tender heart. This tender heart means a kind-hearted or a caring or a compassionate. It's actually very similar to sympathy in that you're sharing in one's feelings, but it goes so much more deeper. In fact, the, 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 the original or the kind of the, the root word for this tender heart really uh, is sometimes translated as bowels or intestines. And what it means is it means to feel deeply. It's not just a, a mental or cognitive recognition that someone is hurting and going, man, I really feel bad for you. But it, it, it's, like, it's almost like it, it affects you physically. A tender heart is where you feel where it affects you physically, where you have almost an ache in your own stomach. And more often than not, we see that when you feel deeply, it oftentimes compels us to act compassionately. When you have this deep ache in your, in your heart and kind of the, the innermost part of your being for somebody else, you cannot sit idly by going, well, I hope it changes. No, you are compelled to do something as the Lord calls you to do something. Fifth and finally, the right attitude appropriate with excellent conduct is a humble mind. This is arguably probably the most important mindset to adopt and really the precursor to every Christian virtue and Christ-like attitude. What does, again, Paul say in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mindset among yourselves, because this was also consistent with the mindset of Christ, my translation. There's a book that came out uh, when we think of having a humble mind. Uh, It's a book that I read about a year and a half ago, and um, we actually passed it out to a few friends and stuff, not because we're like, wow, they could really use this. But uh, this book called, very appropriately titled, Humility, uh, by Andrew Murray. Um, My wife is going through it again right now, thankfully. Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding, man. (laughs) Obviously, I need to reread it, right? (laughs) Review my notes. But Andrew Murray, actually, I mean, if I can't, it's a very short read. Look how thin that is. Thin does not necessarily mean reading fast because there's a lot of points made that are cause for deep reflection and confession. And so uh, Andrew Murray, when, in, in his 
explanation of humility, he says this, and it kind of jumped off the page for me, and I would like to read an excerpt for you. He says, There is no love without humility as its root. The only humility that is really ours is not the humility we try to show before God in prayer, but that which we carry with us and actively live in our ordinary conduct. Meaning, it is in our relationship to one another, in our treatment of one another, that the true lowliness of mind and the heart of humility will be seen. He goes on to say near the end of that chapter where this, this little excerpt is from, he says, in conclusion, let us look at every person who annoys us and agitates us as God's means of grace, God's instrument for our purification for working out the humility of Jesus Christ in our life that he breathes within us. Every opportunity to learn, to grow, to deepen this virtue of humility. From a humble mind, we can have conduct that is pleasing and excellent to the world around us. It's interesting that right attitude also leads to right response. Right attitude leads to right response. And we see in verse 9, Peter says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling that's, or insult for insult, but on the contrary, bless. Now, what is our natural tendency when someone does something to us or when someone says something about us or to us, what, do, what is our propensity in that moment, right? Is it to bless? We might call it a blessing. But really, if we're honest with ourselves, probably that, that trigger reaction that kind of gets evoked in our own heart is really we want Justice. We want vindication. We want to get things, we want to make things kind of, we want to get things even, right? We want to hurt as we have been hurt. And if we cannot get even with this person, if we cannot make things right as we deem as right, then the, at least the very, at least what we can do is we can slander, we can gossip, we can speak evil about that person or that church or that church leadership or that relationship, or that marriage, or whatever it may be. But this is not the response of those who belong to Jesus Christ. You see, the response of those who belong to Jesus Christ when treated in such a manner is to bless. It's interesting that this word for bless that Peter uses here is actually where we get our English word eulogy. To eulogize means to praise or speak well of publicly. So when someone does something or says something about you or to you that hurts you, Peter says, and the way in which followers of Jesus respond is to eulogize, is to speak well of, it is to praise publicly in the presence of other people about that person or even to that person. 
So instead of using our words to get even, we use our words to celebrate and praise. It's almost as if when we hurt and someone pushes us and they poke us and they poke us with their words and they poke us with their actions, what comes out is blessing. Not evil for evil, but evil with good. Proverbs has much to say regarding our use of words, right? Proverbs ten twelve, for example, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Verse 19 of Proverbs 10, whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Verse 18, he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 17, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. The beginning of strife is like the letting out of water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Verse 14, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and whoever has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Proverbs 26.20, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. Just a sampling of the many ways that Proverbs alludes to our use of words. So the question I think for us this morning is, okay, so Peter says, don't return insult for insult, don't return evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless. What does that look like? How can we practically do that in our lives? I mean, Proverbs gives some indication to that, but how do we actually do that? Let me give you some suggestions. One of the suggestions that has really served me well and that continues to kind of... uh, influenced me is what one of my professors in my doctoral class said. He says, always give your third draft response. Because he's an academic, he uses kind of drafts as his metaphor, so to speak. And we've talked about this before, but if you have never heard me say that, always give your third draft response. Because guess what? Our first and second draft is usually fleshly in nature, right? It's usually to one-up. It's to hurt in return. Or even if it's not, we're at least mulling over it and wallowing in it. Give your third draft response, meaning the point is to cause you to pause. It's, to, it's really to adopt what James 1.19 says, be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger, so that you might bring that hurt to the foot of the cross, bring that hurt to Jesus, to let him minister to your heart as a result, and therefore when you do say something or do something, it's not fleshly Aaron, but it's spirit-filled Aaron, so that I might actually be a blessing than a curse. So third draft response. The second practice that we ought to get in the practice of is praying for those who hurt us. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 43 and 44? You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and 
hate your enemies. I'm not sure who said that, but he says, you have heard it said, love your, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The irony of when we pray for those who persecute us or, or, or insult us or do something that hurts us, it actually enables you or empowers you to identify positive traits, to, to, to hone in and, and, and recognize positive qualities about that person versus just being fixated on the hurt that you endured. Praying for people actually protects your heart, and as a result, this brings us to our third point, you are able to genuinely speak well of that person no matter what. You know, I just, uh, many of you know that our dear brother Lyle Baudet, he's no longer in our presence, but he's in the presence of Jesus. And even meeting with Doc this past week, as we're just, as Doc is just describing his dad, and I'm just sitting there jotting notes, and I'm just, I'm honestly just being ministered to by listening to someone's life Doc said something about Lyle that I thought was like, wow, if all of us would adopt that same approach to life. He says, Lyle never talked poorly about anybody to anybody else. Even if he was pretty convinced, like, yeah, there's a lot I could bring up. There's a lot of things I could refer to right now. He never talked poorly about anybody. You know, when we pray for people, it allows us to identify or recognize those qualities in them regardless of the hurt inflicted and, and therefore we can respond and actually speak well of that person. Fourth and finally, we forgive them. There's a, there's a whole series wrapped around that statement. But we're called to Forgive. What does Ephesians 4.32 say? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Just as God, in Christ, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. If I could give you a, a helpful, encouraging warning, let me just say this. We've talked about right attitude. We're talking about right response In our right response, let me just say this, stop rehearsing your hurt. Stop rehearsing your hurt. You see, when we rehearse our hurt, it only serves to reinflict those wounds rather than heal us. The longer we wallow in our hurt, the more enslaved that we become to our hurt. We become, we take on a victim identity. Stop rehearsing the hurt. Bring your hurt to Jesus. Let him bless you and overwhelm you and wash you clean. Let him allow you to see clearly. Let him compel you by his spirit to act accordingly. But don't wallow in the pain. It only serves to be like a quicksand. The more you move, the deeper you sink and the more it traps you. So what does excellent conduct look like within the church? It is right attitude. It's a right response, but it's also those things come by right motivation. Verse 9b and following, Peter says, For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. 
For whoever desires to live a deceit, to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter here quotes from Psalm chapter 34 and highlights really a twofold motivation for treating one another in the church as we have just discussed. The first motivation is actually the motivation of personal benefit. What Peter is basically saying in a very succinct manner is that when you live like this, when you adopt this attitude, and when you respond in this way, it benefits you right now. Not just benefits you for eternity, but it benefits you right now. In fact, let's turn to Psalm chapter 34 real quickly with one another. Turn to Psalm 34. And I'm just going to like quickly survey through a bunch of these psalms as I was actually re- reflecting on it earlier. I'm glad this passage brought me back to this psalm. But in Psalm 34 that Peter quotes, there are so many personal benefits that we gain by living rightly as God calls us to live. Look at Psalm 34, let's say in, starting in verse um, 4. The psalmist David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, the poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord, verse 7, camps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 8, oh, and taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry, what Peter just quoted. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed spirit. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What Peter is getting at by quoting Psalm 34, this is a psalm of personal benefit in one's life right now. Living righteously results in a pro- in promised blessing in your life now. Controlling our tongues benefits you now. Abstaining from sin and pursuing godliness benefits your life now. Seeking after peace and doing whatever it takes to maintain it has great benefit for your life now. What compels us to right attitude and right response is the fact that, as God promises, you have everything to gain. It's not do this and I'm just pleased. That's a good motivation in and of itself. But even God says, you actually benefit by living in this way. You actually gain by living as you are called. Remember, to this you were called. There's a second motivation also that Peter highlights for us, and that that is God sees everything. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do Evil. 
Have you ever noticed in your life how much you are influenced by how much you think or know that when others are watching you? When you know that others are watching you, it kind of, it influences what you say, when you say it, the manner in which you say it, what you do, when you do it. But when you think you're alone, there might be a little bit more uh, looseness to our actions, a little less calculation, a little less self-control. And yet God sees everything. The fact that God sees everything is actually good news for those who are pursuing righteousness. The eyes of the Lord is a phrase that describes the special, the special watchfulness of God over his people. It, it describes how God is the one who looks after us and cares for our needs and even listens to the prayers of those who obey him. But it, but it also is a warning to those who are not pursuing righteousness, are not seeking to please him because the face of the Lord refers to judgment. He is against those who live for themselves. He's against those who desire to do it their way. So IBC, I want you to imagine with me for just a moment. Just imagine. You can close your eyes if you promise not to fall asleep. But just imagine for a moment. Imagine if unity and sympathy and brotherly love and this tenderheartedness and this humility of mind were the attitudes that prevailed our relationships. Imagine if the response to evil actions and to the response to evil words from others were really a response of blessing. Imagine if pleasing God and glorifying God in all things was the overwhelming motivation in our interpersonal relationships with one another. Imagine if we memorized these verses and rehearsed them daily to ourselves. How might that foster such a unity in the church that persecution and struggles and pandemics would not prevail? How might that put our Christian witness on such display that the world cannot help but take notice? How might God be glorified in the sight of unbelievers because his church loved one another so well? A new commandment I give you, Jesus says, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What is this love that Jesus refers to? It's much like what he says two chapters later when he says, no greater love is this than one who lays down his life for his friends. You see, Jesus came and he displayed the perfect, he he put on the perfect display of love by being obedient to going to, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus loved us well. Well, 